One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Plays the Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Curran. Just a moment, Angelina Stanford and Andrew Kern will be discussing Act 5 of Much Ado About Nothing, concluding their conversation of the play. Next week, though, Andrew and Angelina will be answering your questions about Much Ado About Nothing. So if you have a question, feel free to post it on the Close Reads Facebook page where there's a thread there. You'll see that. But you can also email your questions to us if you like. You can email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. Dot com. That's closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. And next week, they will answer as many of those as we can get to. Before we get you over to the interview, though, I just want to let you know about our township program. Anne Shirley Famous realized that kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. It's splendid, she said, to find out that there are so many of them in the world. We couldn't agree more here at the Circe Institute and the Close Reads Podcast Network. For over 20 years, at the forefront of the classical renewal, we've been encouraged by the support of so many like-minded parents and educators. And it can't be overstated how much consistent support from our recurring donors helps our cause. Recurring donations meet the critical but often unseen needs of a nonprofit like us. A steady stream of contributions provides the stability for us to focus on hosting events, producing curricula and resources, creating the media you love like this podcast and, of course, so much more. And that's what the township, our monthly giving program is for. If you would like to support the Circe Institute on a monthly basis, simply select the township option on our donors page and indicate your desired monthly contribution. Whether you're donating $1 or $5 or $30 or $35 a month, township members receive a Circe mug and access to conference audio. These small gifts are simply a token, but they also come with our undying gratitude because they make our work possible. Many of our programs produce virtually no net profit. So we rely as much as possible on the gifts of like-minded friends like you. Again, you can go over to circeinstitute.com slash donate to find out how you can give on a monthly basis. Thanks so much for your ongoing support. Thank you for listening to this show. And with that, I'll get you over to Angelina and Andrew's discussion of Act 5 of Much You Don't Want Nothing. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I cannot believe we're at the end of this play already. It's kind of sad. I'm feeling a little sad about it myself. I say we just start over and do it again. I, I'd be I'd be fine with that because as you know, I'm one of those who believes that you have to read 
you you have to read something once just to get the big picture, the whole the picture, mm-hmm. the adult of it, and then you can understand it. Wish let's model it. All right, let's go through it again. You know what's interesting about that is that's actually that's actually a cosmological thing, where in in Shakespeare's day, because of a cosmology that believed in in a harmony that flowed through everything, and that had multi layers to it, everybody expected that a work of art would reflect that. And oh, absolutely. So then you read it once, you get the big picture. Now we'll go through it and think about it. I mean, still, serious readers still do that. But I think generally speaking, you'll actually hear people say, well, I already read that. Which to me is an unfathomable concept. It is completely unfathomable to me. It's like saying I already ate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, that's good. You might want to eat again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. It's like I already ate. So, but nonetheless, here we are. And if you go on thus, you will kill yourself. <laughs> it is not wisdom thus to second grief against yourself. Uh, so I enjoyed reading this, uh, this act again this morning. I read it slowly trying to look for some things. I'm, I'm, I still don't know that I'm feeling really good about Claudio, but I do. I can see that in terms of the story Shakespeare's giving us, we are to believe that he's reconciled at the end because Leonardo treats Claudio. Well, he says Claudio and Don Pedro are not to blame because they fell victim to Don John. That's um, that by mistaking, right? And and so one of the things I've been thinking about this morning was. Is my modernity getting in the way of accepting this reconciliation between Claudio and Harrow? Because it seems to me so over the top to publicly shame her. But no one acts like, no one in the play treats that as abusive or, or out of the ordinary. The only issue here is that she wasn't guilty of it. But had she been guilty of it, I think everyone treats this as if he did the right and just thing. We talked about that a little bit last session where maybe two sessions ago where I was contending that in order to appreciate Claudio doing that and in, in order not to appreciate in the sense of regard it positively, right. but in order to understand why Claudio would do that, you do have to enter into that sense of honor that that a Claudio is protecting and a Don Pedro is protecting because remember both of them say that mm-hmm. they've been, they've been dishonored and that's not like a modern person going, Oh, that's embarrassing. That's, that's a, um, a whole social structure, a whole, um, whether we approve of it or not, it's a whole, it's, it's a whole place in society, which again, think cosmology in, in, in a cosmological framework where everything is intertwined, where ethics and music and art and, and philosophy and cosmology, in other words, what you believe about the universe, where all of this is intertwined, to pluck one of those strings off key is to put them all off key. And Oh, absolutely. And so Claudio is feeling, okay, I'll compare it to Achilles. He's feeling something. He's no Achilles. Don't misunderstand me but he's feeling something in terms of the shame to him. He has, he has been exposed as a cuckold before even being married. He's, he has been exposed as, as far as he understands it. 
he has been exposed as a person who cannot manage his own life, who cannot manage even before getting married his own. He, he couldn't, he didn't even know that this woman was unfaithful to him in a way that was manifest, right? Apparently that was manifest that he should have known. He, he is exposed as a complete disgrace of a human being from, from that, from within that, framework and i'm not sure that framework's altogether wrong right and then because he has falsely accused harrow he has now brought shame to her and her family and it is interesting that leonardo and benedict both respond to that with challenging claudio to a duel and and so what seems to be over this whole section is that the only remedy for this level of shame is death, right? Someone's got to die. So it's Hero who's going to die. Uh, Well, it's funny that you bring up the Iliad. I'm probably going to go somewhere. I really don't want to go, but um, I'm teaching the Iliad right now. It's always interesting to read things at the same time. And I had been the connection between dueling and what happens between Agamemnon and Achilles is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, That it's easy for us to be hard on Agamemnon and Achilles for not being able to reconcile this shame. Um, And in the end, even their public reconciliation is kind of sorry, not sorry, let's just get on with it. Uh, And, and I was, I introduced the idea to my students that, even after Christ comes and introduces a new ethic, which is turn the other cheek. If you've been shamed, turn the other cheek. Um, don't take vengeance on someone. Even 2,000 years, almost, because it went into the 1800s, we're still dueling in America. So for almost two millennia after Jesus says, turn the other cheek, Christian people in Christian countries are still really struggling with how do you recover from public shame? And you see dueling lingering for a long time, even after it's outlawed, because people can't can't deal with what it means to be publicly shamed. And so I'm thinking about all of these things. And as we read this play, that's a heck of a dilemma. I agree with you. It's a heck of a dilemma. And and I'm not convinced myself that we have um, stopped being concerned about public shame. Uh, we, we are a democracy. And so what we tend to do is sublimate, um, things that in an aristocracy are more put on the surface in symbolic form. I mean, in in a way, the nature of democracy is to be dishonest with ourselves, um, to not admit why we want things because, because you have to, because I like, I like democratic, I like egalitarian, you know, I like equality. But I'm also sensitive to the fact that that it it's an it's a it's an opening to propaganda, in which everything is about persuasion, um, on the basis of reason. Right? That's how the Enlightenment gives rise to something more like democracy. Everything's on the basis of persuasion, subject to to reason. But we don't believe in reason as a culture, and so so now it becomes outpassion the other person. And this is where the this is where the breakdown in Leonardo is so interesting because, you know, at the beginning of this of this scene, Act Five, Scene One, what's he saying? He's saying, "Look, you guys, you're trying to tell me to function rationally, Antonio. Mm-hmm. Cease thy counsel. 
which falls into mine ears as profitless as water in a sieve. Give me not counsel, no let no comfort or delight mine ear, but such a one whose wrongs do suit with mine. Bring me a father that so loved his child, whose joy of her is overwhelmed like mine, and bid him speak of patience. And his whole argument here, which is very moving, is, look, un- unless you've experienced my sorrow, why would I listen to you? Mm-hmm. Which, which is moving. That's another kind of an adolescent argument, but it's, it's moving and powerful. But how can you live like that in society? And, and if that's what it is, okay, he, he says, um, there is no such man. There's nobody who's suffered like I have. There is no such man. For brother, men can counsel and speak comfort to that grief which they themselves not feel. By tasting it, their counsel turns to passion, right? Their counsel mm-hmm. turns to passion, which before would give precipitial medicine to rage, fetter strong madness in a silken thread, charm ache with air and agony with words. What a great line, charm ache with air. In other words, just breathe on it, just your breath, you know. And, and I've been thinking through, as we go through this whole play, I've been thinking about, of course, persuasion and winning the other's will. And what Leonardo's saying is, Antonio, if you're going to win my will right now, if you're going to get me to listen to you, you have to have suffered in precisely the same way I have. And what he's doing is putting a childish defense around himself that makes him either incapable of being persuaded at all, um, saying that his passions are more important than anything, or contrary to that, making himself, because he's going to an extreme, subject to some propagandist who can convince him that he suffered like he has. And how many times do you win, do, do people in our culture win an argument by, by taking the, the, I'm a broken person and, oh, I can help you because I'm broken with you. And then, you know, you, whatever immoral, uh, new moral, whatever they want to bring in, they, they do on the basis of shared suffering. It's not sufficient. And yet, like with so many wrong ideas, it's, it's not, completely false it's Correct. the twisting like any, up of like truth. any wrong idea right. there's nothing else you and, can do but just twist truth right and and because i think about this a lot that that theologic okay i'm gonna get on a soapbox here and i might get shot down for this because this is just one of my crazy things i think about but i think about how theologically we needed a savior to die for us but theologically it wasn't necessary for him to suffer in that act but because he suffered in it, he then entered into our pain. Compassion means to suffer with. So we do have someone who understands our suffering. We do have a savior who can relate to us. But he doesn't come to us and say, I've suffered with you and you've suffered with you. And now we're all going to suffer together. It's more like he's redeemed our suffering. And so he, he meets us in the suffering and he can show us hope in there as well. So, I mean, I guess it's the fullest, fuller picture of what the way suffering can be redemptive because he. That's good. I was thinking, I'm not sure how far I can agree that God himself doesn't know what suffering is, but being omnipotent and omniscient, but I've been thinking a lot today, thinking on this play, how suffering with hope is an entirely different experience from suffering without hope. And for for example, if you go to the gym and you work out, you're going to suffer right? And people do it with joy because, because they know that this is doing them good and, and, and they feel themselves coming alive as they strengthen, right? But if on the other hand, you're aging and you feel uh, arthritis coming on you, or if you feel you know, the pain of arthritis fully set in, 
man, that's an entirely different thing from the pain of working out. And that's what uh, kind of Leonardo is going over to this. I have a hopeless suffering here. I have a pain that nobody can match. And I think you're right that, that the sufferings of our Lord are such that nobody can say, I've outsuffered him, right? He, Leonardo says, there was never yet philosopher that could endure the toothache patiently, which is an echo of something Benedict had said earlier, um, just before he was gulled. But there was mm-hmm. never yet, and, and that's a big deal in philosophy, in the history of philosophy is the idea of a toothache. Because, um, you know, one of the things that, that the great philosophers of the ancient world were always trying to do was what they argued was you can't think clearly if you're distracted by your body, pleasure or pain. And so you have uh-huh. to be able to, you have to be able to endure the toothache patiently or it will distract you from truth, right? It's kind of like Odysseus having to deal with a polyphemus or all the pain that Odysseus, the man of many sorrows, right? It's mm-hmm. all the pain he had to deal with on the way to get home. If you can't deal with pain, you can't do philosophy according to the, to the, philosophers, the ancient philosophers, at least. But it is interesting that Lee and I, and you and I both agree this is not the proper response to, to his argument, but his conclusion to this argument is the only relief I can get from this suffering is to make those who are causing it suffer also. Beautiful. Yeah. Antonio offers revenge and Leonardo, Leonardo's response to that is interesting. There thou speakst mm-hmm. reason. Nothing you've set up till this point is rational until now you bring in, make those that do offend you suffer too. That's reasonable. And then he says, my soul doth tell me hero is belied. Well, why didn't he ever say that before? Yes, I thought that was interesting too. Now he's saying he believes she has been falsely wronged. But his challenge of the duel is very differently motivated than Benedict's. Go on. Well, okay, so I guess... It seems to me that Leonardo wants, I'm going to, it's that I'm going to make someone suffer. I'm suffering, so I'm going to make someone suffer. Claudio has to suffer for this. Uh-huh. Um, and Benedict seems to be taking a more, what do I want to say, principled approach. You have, you have created this situation. You have dishonored this woman. The only way to restore her honor is for me to call you out. And that is what I'm going to do. That's interesting. That's not how Antonio, that, or sorry, that's not how... That's not how Pedro and Claudio take it. They, they take it, and, and it's really interesting how explicit it is in the book. Um, where did it go? Um, after, after Pedro, after Benedict cha- challenges Claudio, well, when he challenges him, he takes him aside, right? He right, says, so Don Pedro doesn't hear. Right. So right. it's not a public, I thought that was interesting. It's Me a too. private, not a public challenge. Yeah, because Pedro thinks, what, he's invited you to a feast? Right, that's what he says to Claudio. And then Benedict says, sir, your wit ambles well, it goes easily, all this stuff, okay. And, and then Pedro starts going on about Beatrice, which Claudio develops. So Claudio's playing it very cool here, not like in the much uh-huh. new Branagh version, he's playing it very cool. Um, and then, he, then Benedict says, okay, you're, I've, I challenge you, now I'm leaving. And by the way, Prince Don Pedro, I have to leave your group, I can't be a part Mm -hmm. of you anymore because you've done these horrible things in your company. These horrible, horrible things have happened. And then Pedro says he is in earnest. And Claudio responds, this is at line 190 in my book, in most profound earnest. And I'll warrant you for the love of Beatrice. Mm -hmm. Now, whether Claudio is covering for himself or not, 
their take on it is that he's not coming after me because of principle. He's coming after me because, as Pedro says, what a pretty thing man is when he goes in his doublet and hose and leaves off his wit. Right? This he's lost his mind because of his love for Beatrice. So he's right. challenged you, his friend, to and he's right. You there? Yeah, I'm there. Oh, okay. I don't disagree with you. Uh, I guess I see Benedict, even if he does it for the love of Beatrice, I don't see that as the same thing as what Leonardo's doing. First of all, Benedict seems to be so in control of himself, even to even to pull Claudio aside and to say quietly to him, I'm challenging you. That It doesn't strike me as this man out of control in his passions and he's coming out here and I'm suffering and I'm going to make everybody suffer. I agree with that. I completely agree with that. The, um, in fact, I would go so far as to say that it's in Act Five that the uh, the Kenneth Branagh approach to Benedict really kind of breaks down because he's he's more or less got Benedict being a comical, more or less buffoon character, and it's fun. It's a great way to do it, but I'm not sure Shakespeare would have done it that way. I think I think Benedict has much more dignity um, in the in the social customs of the day. I think Benedict is much more of a tough guy, a manly man in, in the original conception. So you're right. He's demonstrating control here. Yes. I also, I also read Benedict that way. I think Benedict is a much more manly man. I agree. And I, that's why I think it's so, it makes it a much more significant act that he's stepping away from his brothers in arms and choosing the love of Beatrice. Yeah, and then using his arms on behalf of Beatrice, which is what she told him to do. Don't right. swear and eat it. Just if you're going to swear, do something. Hmm. I was struck by that though, because I hadn't, you know, I'm, I've seen a couple movies and and I've read this before, but I hadn't noticed as completely how how much they they're playing him, Pedro and. Claudio are continuing to tease him about Beatrice. Yes, yes. That really struck me this time too. I wrote that in the margin. What's not, it's not funny to me that Don Pedro's continuing to do it because he's not in the loop here, but that Claudio, who's just yeah. been challenged to a duel, is keeping up the print. Like, what does he do? Is he just trying to joke this off? Huh, yeah, maybe so. Maybe he's also acting tough because he doesn't back down Claudio. And, you know, he's none of this. Nope tossing him up against the wall and then bad acting makes him look pathetic. Claudio is not, is not um, cowering here. In fact, way at the end, I noticed that when they, at the wedding, right up to the very end, when Benedict says, come, come, we are friends. Right before that, Claudio has said to Benedict, I had well hoped thou wouldst have denied Beatrice that I might have cudgeled thee out of thy single life to make thee a double dealer. Right, he's being playful, but he's still he's still got this rivalry thing going. He's still challenging him. Yeah, so, I noticed but, that too. But now comes Dogbury. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have quite the dignity. What do you so think? really, Act Five is. I read Act Five as it's a series of revelations, right? All these masks are being revealed, and even in the last scene, he does it so well, where it's literal masks coming off. I think you're right. In fact, it's a revelation 
at so many levels. One is the masks, right? And, you know, I've been going through highlighting my book, um, trying to fo- highlight only lines that indicate something about verbal persuasion or the use of language, which sounds kind of silly at, at one level. But what struck me is in Act 5, Scene 1, well, let me put it this way. Going through it like that, every line I have to ask myself, is there something here where Shakespeare or a character seems to be making a point about persuasion and about the use of language? And in Act 5, Scene 1, almost every single line is explicitly about that. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe how yellow the, the book turned. And then, of course, Dogbury comes in. But but when, um, oh, shoot, I forgot what I was going to say. Something about Leonardo, I think, and that distracted me. What did you say just before I got going about language? The masks. Oh, yeah, a series yeah, yeah. of revelations. Right. And And here's what struck me in that whole unmasking the turning point in the play might be in terms of making claudio justifiable or believable might be at what's line 262 in my book leonardo baraccio they've 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 been revealed right which is the villain let me see his eyes that scene Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, that development and then just below that okay um baraccio Seems, you know, he really comes to sort of a self-awareness and a nobility where he's, it's all my fault. I'm guilty. Yes, right. Yes. And then right after that, Leonardo says, I thank you, princes, for my daughter's death. Record it with your high and worthy deeds. That's amazing. Twas bravely done if you bethink you of it. You know, that's sticking the knife right into his heart. Rightly so except of course that the daughter's not dead. And then Claudio says the magic words, I know not, right? Has anybody, I I thought about it and couldn't think of anyone and didn't look because I didn't have time, but has anybody in the play before this said, I don't know? No, we had a couple of instances of silence, but that's as close as we got to someone not knowing what to say. Yeah. And it's not even, it's, I know not how to pray your patience, yet I must speak, right? He, he's in a platonic sense or a Socratic sense, you could say this is the ultimate expression of humility. I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to think. I am, I am completely in the wrong here. In a way, he's supplicating. Choose your revenge yourself. And I mean supplicating in the informal sense. So to go back to the Iliad, right, where you, when you supplicate, you put your you put your uh, left hand on a person's chin or beard, and right hand around their knee. No, no, right hand around their chin or beard on their chin, and left hand around their their knee, which leaves your neck totally exposed. Right, that's what it means to supplicate. It's absolute surrender. So when Claudia says, "Choose your revenge yourself," that's what he's doing. He's supplicating. He's completely, yes. completely saying, I'm in the wrong here. You do anything you want to me and it will be just. Yes. And considering that Leonardo has just a few lines earlier challenged him to a duel, I, I, I take that as Claudio's admission of you could kill me. Yeah. I deserve death. Yeah. Yeah. Imposed to me to what penance your invention can lay upon my sin. Now, there is the yet sinned I not, but in mistaking, and maybe that's Claudio pulling back a little bit of his surrender, but fundamentally, he's still saying it. He's still saying, I'm utterly in the wrong. And then Pedro says, by my soul, nor I. I think this is about as 
complete a, a repentance as you can ask for. And and I don't know everything to make of this, but to go back to what you were saying about Baraccio, this this is not a knot that gets untangled by anything other than a full confession. Hmm. Yeah, by multiple he, people. He and he keeps correcting where Dogberry's wrong, right? And then they want to blame Margaret. Nope, she didn't know any. Nope, she she had no idea what we were up to, and, and he just. Uh, He's the one who is unmasking everything. I mean, he starts off saying, I've deceived all of you. Baraccio, you mean? Right. Yeah. If you would know you're wrong or look on me. Yeah. That's, that's ex- absolutely, yeah, that's a great point. In fact, he, he gives a longish speech where he says, um, do you hear me and let this count kill me? Mm-hmm. I have deceived even your very eyes. What your wisdoms could not discover, which is a great line because in that scene where Benedict and Beatrice are talking, Benedict is forced by Beatrice to, to defend his self-praise about wisdom, right? But here he's saying, what your wisdoms could not discover, these shallow fools have brought to light. And then we get to the noting again, who in the, over, in the night overheard me confessing to this man. It's fascinating. And the friar had said, if we make it out that Harrow is dead, this will be the thing to change everyone's hearts. And it ends up changing Baraccio's heart. I mean, he ends up saying she's uh, dead and it's my fault. It's my fault she's dead. That's, that's why he's confessing everything. That's really good. That's really good. The consequences are driven home to him. He still has a conscience. Right. And of course, even if she's not pretending to be dead, he has killed her. He has killed her with slander. But the but the false death, the pretended death, the disguise, the mask of death, if you will, uh, wow, is what good. brings the light, the truth to light. I love it. The mask of death, because because you know they had death masks and all that. But um, right when Leonardo then says to Claudio, "This is what you have to do." Mm-hmm. You know, first you have to publicly undo your slander. I cannot bid you bid my daughter live. I love that line. I cannot bid you bid my daughter live. That were impossible. But I pray you both possess the people in Messina here how innocent she died. Okay. And then he gets into tools of rhetoric, labor and sought, labor ought and sad invention. But he says, just let people know here, possess the people here in Messina. In other words, let them know that she died innocent. Go to her tomb and sing to her. And then be at my nephew. And, and then that line, my brother hath a daughter, almost the copy of my child that's dead. Right, we're back again to masks and mirrors and all that, right? Almost right, right. the copy. She's going to copy herself. And by copying herself, everything gets bought, brought back to. Yes. And then when they have that, moment when he you know when she she moves for the veil and he says a second harrow and she says you're a second claudio um yeah they both talk about they've been dead and reborn and it's interesting too that i actually i love this it's more than just interesting leonardo is saying you have to tell the truth about her publicly right and it is in fact then from a metaphorical sense and a plot sense it's the truth that resurrects her she says he says are you not dead and she says i was only dead while my slander lived so the truth resurrects her. Huh, that's, that's really good. That's really good. And Baraccio had to trigger that. 
brought you right. had to one to trigger the the repentant the, the series of confessions. Villain. Yes. Huh. And 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 Leonardo then says when he talks about she being a copy and and you know it's before they get into what you just said about the dying but it's implied in all of this he says to give her the right you should have given her cousin and so dies my revenge right and right. to us to us that can seem really crazy again too but but it, what what i think one has to appreciate is claudio is saying I dispose for henceforth of poor Claudio. He's not thinking to himself, oh, that was a close call. I get, maybe I'll get someone like Hero. He's thinking, whoever it is, it's only right that I should have to marry her no matter what. Right? That's not an easy thing to do, to to marry somebody that you have never seen. <laughs> yes, Especially when this... you love somebody else. Right. Who you killed. Yeah. Maybe part of the reason it's hard for me to really feel bad for Claudio is what you were just saying earlier, that he's playing tough here. Well, I is, don't think is there is hurt here. mixed in with his anger? No, no, not here. Not here. Just, I guess, <laughs> I hate to say it. You know, I'm a woman. I guess I want to see him tearing his shirt and crying. What have I done? What have I done? I killed the woman I love, but I'm okay. not going to get that from him. Okay, look at 283. Well, I don't know what it is for you. After... After Leonardo says, give her the right you should have given her cousin, and so does my revenge. Okay. Claudio yes. says, Oh, noble sir, your overkindness doth wring tears from me. I do embrace your offer and dispose for henceforth of poor Claudio. It's up to the it's up to the director to determine how much Claudio weeps here. But True. he weeps, right? His kindness combined with okay, we start, we start with. Claudio being a tough guy, talking off and, and handling the, the, um, the challenge from Benedict. Okay, then he hears that Baraccio um, fooled him, dishonored him, really. And instead of trying to get revenge on Baraccio, which he could have done, instead, he, he falls before his prospective father-in-law and says, I'm totally in the wrong here. He doesn't try to blame Baraccio. He says, I'm totally in the wrong. This is, this is my sin. And then the, and, and so the, so the sin, the confrontation with the sin is direct and he takes it on himself. He doesn't try to blame anybody else. And it's then that Leonardo can make a positive move. What we know is a positive move and say to Claudio, well, I'm not going to kill you. Okay. I'm not going to kill you. I'm instead going to have you marry my niece who looks a lot like this girl that you love. Now, you know, that's very mixed up. That's very, we can, it's easy to argue one way or the other, but he then says you're over kindness, kindness doth ring tears from me. So we've gone from confrontation and confession to kindness. And to me, this is, it's a very good image in my mind of a Christian repentance, right? It's, it's not always, Sometimes we're, we're just broken and upset by the realization of our sin, okay? And maybe, maybe, maybe we just want to do something about it. But when it comes to the grace that's poured out on us, the kindness that replaces the punishment, that's a lot harder than to, to just say, oh, man, okay, I'll do something here. 
you know, that's when that's when the tears tend to be wrung out of us. So, no, and that's true. And, that's, and Leonardo has just gone from wanting to kill him to now saying, I'm going to embrace you as a member of the family. Uh-huh. So, yes, I can see that that mercy would absolutely overwhelm Claudio. I, 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 I totally see that in terms of the play, that is how we're supposed to read it. I just struggle. Well, let me say that I don't have any problem with your struggle. Right, I buy that too. What I, and I'm not trying to argue that this is a one-dimensional move where Claudio, you know, goes through this whole process of repentance. Shakespeare just doesn't do that, right? Shakespeare, Shakespeare is showing us a complex human being in a complex human context, and so we're going to have all kinds of reasons to withhold our approval of Claudio, right? And we're also going to have you could you could take any character in it in this play because it's one of his most mature plays. You take any character in this play and you could find reasons to argue for or against that person. That's life. That's the genius of, of Shakespeare is that, you know, I, I've never been a character fit to be in a good guy, bad guy play, right? I, I, <laughs> I, I, I like to think I'm not even worthy of being a pure bad guy, but maybe I am. But I know I'm not fit to be a pure good guy. And I don't think Shakespeare wants us to not feel that that sense that you're feeling of hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't want to totally give my heart to this guy to to approve of this guy. But that's what the play is about: is how do you in this complex life situation determine who you give your heart to? He's not going to give us simple characters who are always good any more than God will. They're not here except Jesus. They're just they're not here. Right. Right. And 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 Harrow is very pleased with the arrangement. I mean, there's no question in terms of the story. Yeah, she's never lost trust and and confidence in Claudio, apparently. No, and that's weird to me. I mean, I accept <laughs> it that it happened in the story, but uh, <laughs> that's not the surprise Claudio had, would have gotten if I had been, <laughs> if I had been the girl. <laughs> well, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> And it brings out Margaret to me because two two characters that I've never really paid close attention to before this read are Bennett, are Baraccio and Margaret, who obviously are our third couple, right? Baraccio. Right. And and it's so okay, what do you think of this when Baraccio's talking about Margaret just before Margaret and Benedict have a very risque conversation about poetry? Okay. Here's what Baraccio says about Margaret. Yes, I marked that. Go ahead. Okay, so Leonardo says that Margaret was involved in this. And Baraccio and knew. And Baraccio says, no, by my soul, she was not, nor knew what she did when she spoke to me. Now listen to this. But always hath been just and virtuous in anything that I do know by her. What the heck? He used her apparently, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe it's a modern, maybe it's Branagh again coming in on us, but but you know. The implication is that they were out on the balcony. Oh, maybe it isn't. Maybe I'm modernizing. The Do you text buy it itself that- doesn't say. All they reference is conversations. Right. 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 Between Baraccio and, and, and Harrow, which wasn't Harrow, but Margaret. Right. But still, they're having a conversation with obvious sexual overtones, and she's pretending to be... Right. Harrow, I mean, you know, what's they're not talking about the flowers and the clouds. Do you buy that Baraccio is fit to say that Margaret has always been just and virtuous? Do you do you buy that Margaret has always been just and virtuous? I guess in that moment I saw Baraccio being kind of noble and not choosing to throw her under the bus. Okay. Did he lie to do so? 
in, in his saying that she's always been just and virtuous. Yeah. Does Margaret strike you as a just and virtuous character? Well, not virtuous in the way that we meant it, but maybe virtuous if you if he means she's not uh, deceitful. She's not Don John. She's not causing trouble. She's not um, the discord in the in the chorus. That's fair. That's fair, because clearly there are differences of opinion in societies about what is virtuous. And I think also that's part of what Shakespeare's getting at. Again, if you're trying to win somebody's heart, my contention would be that you're going to use the virtues that appeal to that person to do so. In other words, you're never going to win another person's heart with pure vice. Now, I know some people are going to say, oh, yeah, you know, seduction is that's what that. No, seduction is not pure vice. Seduction is taking a gift from God, a beautiful thing, and using it for evil purposes. It's using physical virtues to achieve immoral ends. And my contention would be that, that the observer, that the, a person who is deceived, which is all over this play, a person who is deceived is deceived based on the virtues to which he is attracted. If you are attracted to the physical virtues, then that's what will be easy to deceive you with. If you are attracted to the, to the um, courageous or the honorable virtues, then that's where you'll be easily seduced. And if you're attracted to the true virtues, if I can use that phrase, or the spiritual virtues, those are the only ones. And I'm, I'm thinking here of 1 Corinthians 3. Those are the only ones that enable you to just appropriate, to, sorry, to, to judge appropriately what's happening to you. And, and that's a hard thing. That's a hard, hard thing to come to terms with. Hmm. I agree with you that Margaret is a bit of a problem character. I don't know how to read her. <laughs> They're all problem characters. <laughs> yeah, I guess they are. We, right? That's the point. We are all problem characters. And what Shakespeare's doing is holding a mirror up to nature. Here, look at yourself, he's saying to us. Look at this is what you're like, admit it. And we should get to the point where we say with Claudio, I know not how to pray your patience. I sinned. What? That, okay, so this is very interesting then. So essentially what Shakespeare has done with the characters in this play is he's given us a villain with almost no motivation, no backstory, no sympathy. He's just evil for the sake of being evil, period. And I'm going to bring him in and he's going to cause trouble and then I'm going to remove him because we don't really care about him. But then everybody else is like gray. Hmm. And complicated. And I mean, because I certainly don't feel about Baraccio the way I feel about Don John. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Even though he also is a villain, but he confesses. He feels bad when he sees the trouble that he's caused. Never really I'm not really sure what his motivation is for having done it in the first place. I mean, he does get paid, but he's also the one who brings it up as, "Hey, I know I know something we could do since you're bored. <laughs> start some trouble." Uh-huh. That's true. It's his idea. Or maybe it's that Don John abandons him. Ah, that has broken the spell. Interesting. So we also have loyalties there broken up. Huh. Don John's virtues. <laughs> 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 Didn't include loyalty. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no honor among thieves, right? Well, uh, yeah, but there is in, in actual historical fact, there is. 
There can be, yes. So then we get scene two. And so, you know, gosh, act five is intense because he's bringing together all of these threads that he's been laying out for us. And and so that idea of the ultra romantic and the anti-romantic. And so that um, Claudio and Harrow start off as the ultra romantics and end up uh, in act four as the anti-romantics. You know, I'll never love again. So that's very anti-romantic. Benedict and Beatrice start in the I'll never love anybody. Uh And now... Uh, in scene two, it's Benedict trying to write a love sonnet and failing. He's trying to be the ultra romantic and he can't. And it's hilarious. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It is hilarious. It is hilariously hilarious. <laughs> and the more and the more you read it and think about it and watch it, the more hilarious it becomes. I mean, the 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 poem. First of all, the poem is so bad. <laughs> right. All the things he's trying to rhyme, lady and baby. <laughs> Yeah. Well, think of this, even the part that we can read, right? The God of love that sits above. Is it possible to write something more pathetic than that? And, and Shakespeare, Shakespeare knows that there are only seven words in the English language that rhyme with love, right? He knows that you never, ever, ever, if there's any way to avoid it, you never end a rhyme in a poem with the word love. You are doomed in the English language. This is why in English, we can't think about love. Two few words rhyme with it. We're completely linguistically incapable of that's writing good love poetry. Great. That's, a, that's great. That, that's your next book right there. Yeah. yeah. Why we suck at love. Because yeah. yeah, there are no rhyming words. Exactly. And that's, again, that's what, that, that's what Shakespeare's showing us in this whole poem is the multi-layered dependence. I was thinking about this too. Okay. If, if you're going to think about any issue in life, one of the most important things you have to have is categories to think about it with. Oh, absolutely. So for example, I don't know. I've watched the movie. I don't know how many times I've read the play quite a few times. And when he starts going, I know what he's talking about with Leander and Troilus. These are all what he calls quondam carpet mongers. These are people who, who couldn't go into battle. They were so in love. Once upon a time, they sold carpets is what I understand that to mean. And yet their names run smoothly in the even road of blank verse, right? They, in other words, it sounds like he might be saying the reason they're sung about is because their names made for good poetry. <laughs> right? Troilus and Leander. Those are poetic names. But I can't... It goes back to your to your love and war thing too. I just read the note. So the quantum carpet mangas refers to knights who who avoided military service. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So that's if, good. If they're that's not warriors. Good. They're lovers. That's why they can have good poems about them. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then and they were never tr- truly turned over and over as my poor self in love. Oh, and but that's I, it, right? We all think that. I, I always say love by definition feels unique. Thus, Leonardo. And Benedict now are parallel to each other saying, nobody can Nobody knows to what this. I feel. Yes. Exactly. Nobody yes. knows the trouble I feel. And then he says, and it, I don't know what to do with this. If I wanted to have a really, really cynical <laughs> approach to the play, this would be a really featured play. Because he says, Mary, I cannot show it in rhyme. I have tried. And, and so then he talks about lady and baby. But I always, I, I would listen to this and think, okay, what the heck? Innocent rhyme? Hard rhyme? Babbling rhyme? Very ominous endings. I was not born under a rhyming. What is this? I was never taught this in any poetry class. What's a hard rhyme? What's an innocent rhyme? Right? And, and, and I know I grant you in the Renaissance, they had something like 252 listed and named figures of speech, which Shakespeare learned as a child. So 
Benedict would have gone to a school where he learned the technical terms of it, but he can't use them, right? He can't successfully do it. But I don't even have the categories to think about poetry in the way Benedict is here. And that, and if okay, that, so go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. I was just saying my note says that innocent rhyme is him saying it's childish to rhyme lady and baby. That's like a child and scorn and horn is a hard rhyme. Um, and, and so calling it hard is going to associate it with the idea of the cuckold's horn. So it's harsh. It's unpleasant. Like I can't rhyme scorn and horn because that's going to imply that I'm going to be a cuckold. Yeah. And then family. And I get that. I get that. That's what that's what he's getting at. OK, what I'm saying is twofold. One is. We have to look at the notes to know that. Yes. Right? Those aren't internal to us. And and two, what I'm getting at is by analogy, this is this is this is one of those instances where the the discord of our, our minds is reflected in our inability to have the right categories to think about things. Mm-hmm. So in Shakespeare's day, the same categories, the same names, if you like, were used to talk about ethical things as we're used to talk about artistic things because propriety was seen to judge both. Okay. So if you're, if you're making a moral decision in the, in the, I'm going to say late Christian, late medieval Christian worldview, if you want to use unfortunate language. Okay. There's an example. Okay. Nowadays we use the category of thought worldview, which comes from the German Weltanschauung. We spend a lot of time thinking about things in terms of a worldview. That category, that name has replaced the, the medieval and late, mm-hmm. Christ, late medieval Christian term cosmology. Okay. Now think about the difference between a worldview and a cosmology. One is all about my perspective. Oh, I was just going to say that. Yes. Go, yes. go ahead and say what you were thinking. No, no, say it. No, you're, you're saying it. That's exactly right. What if it makes you the center of determining reality? And the other one's about figuring out where you are in the grand scheme of everything. That's beautifully said. And, and in that sense, one's objective and one is subjective. And so, so when he's talking about poetry, any of those words that he's using to think about poetry could also be used to think about ethics. Now, just consider this. Think how hard it is in our society to move between artistic things and ethical things, between science and art, between all these different categories, because we don't have common categories that harmonize them. Our mm-hmm. minds are fragmented. I've, I've said, probably you've heard me say, the quality of our life is determined by the quality of our questions, yes, the questions yes. we ask, okay? And I believe that. The, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing we do, is our soul asks questions. And the ones that we are allowed to arise from our spirit through our soul into our mind determine how well we live. But you have to find answers for some of these questions. And what do we use to find answers for the questions? We use, we use images or, or analogies, and we use categories. And if our analogies are inept and our categories are inept, our thinking is inept. We simply don't have the tools. And in Shakespeare's day, he's able to write like this about a person reflecting on his own poetry because the categories, which are breaking down at that time, work so much better. And it bothers me so much to think of how we try to make ethical decisions without any regard for what we could have learned by studying, by studying the arts, by studying poetry, because we live in an artistic cosmos. Our cosmology as Christians is artistic, not ultimately experimental or scientific. And that bothers people, but that's at the essence of the Christian cosmology. And that means that everything echoes everything else. We ourselves echo God. So I'm getting carried away, but it but it's because of this this whole 
this whole speech by 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 Benedict where he's demonstrating his artistic incompetence and and then I don't know I don't know where I'm going with it after that but that's what he's doing <laughs> I'm not sure what to conclude I completely agree with everything you said I'm I'm not sure what to conclude either I'm not I'm not sure is Shakespeare saying is is Benedict saying I'm not sure what I feel because I can't write it out or is he just saying I can't write poems I think he's saying I just can't write poems. I wasn't born under a rhyming planet. He's kind of falling. This is why I say if I'm going to develop Benedict as a cynical character, this is going to be one of my main, you know, he, he ends up being shallow to the end. If I wanted to argue for that, this would be a, a main place that I would use, followed by his boast, thou and I are too wise to woo peaceably. Well, he's just demonstrated that he's not very wise. He can't even write a poem. Right. And now he's talking to, to Beatrice. And, and of course, wise in that day doesn't mean the same thing. It doesn't mean like he's got some mystical insight into reality. It just means we're clever. We're too clever to woo peaceably. Well, okay, but you can't even write a poem. But if you choose to not read it cynically, then you have Benedict trying to become the ultra romantic and he can't because well, the ultra romantic requires the gifts of Aphrodite. So he needs poetry and love songs and I love know, it. He needs to be Paris and he can't. Right. And, and it really is the lover fighter thing. Benedict's a fighter, not a lover. And so even their loving, even their wooing is war, but they come to a place where that's them. Right. So they go from being the anti-romantic to failing at the ultra romantic to coming together as a real human couple, real human couple. Yeah. Where they really are who they are. And so they're still bantering, but it's all in love now. I buy and, that. I and they know that. what's what. I am. I am very happy to accept that because I want to like this play. And I, I well, I do. <laughs> I want to like Benedict. I want to be glad for where it goes. Something else that that triggers in my mind is that in the very next scene right away is two more poems. Okay. Right. Now I have an opinion and I want to know what you think of this. I think that that first poem that we just looked at, the God of love that sits above and knows me and knows me. What, whereas he's bringing out a theme of the play that this God knows me. And then the, the humility. Oh, and I don't know myself too. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's a horrifyingly bad poem. <laughs> okay. It, I mean, it just makes me laugh to think about Shakespeare. Like now I have to write a really bad poem for this. Poem. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the play. Have you ever read that one in Chaucer where he him, he he has himself be the poet in, in the Canterbury Tales? I'm not sure which one it's, that. It's, it's I can't remember the name either, but but it's it's just the most astonishingly horrible poem you could ever read. <laughs> <laughs> He's so good that he can write terrible poetry. Okay, now here's my opinion that I want your opinion on. In the epitaph, we read Done to death by slanderous tongues was the hero that here lies. Death in guerdon of her wrongs gives her fame which never dies. So the life that died with shame lives in death with glorious fame. I would see that as somewhat better than the previous one. Okay. Then there's the song itself, the third poem. Pardon, goddess of the night, those that slew thy virgin knight, for the witch with songs of woe, Round about her tomb they go. Midnight assist our moan. Help us to sigh and groan. <laughs> heavily, heavily. Graves yawn and yield your dead till death be uttered. Heavily, heavily. Now, my opinion is that that third one is really good. 
that the middle one is really medium and that the first one is horrifyingly bad. What do you think? Well, at midnight assist our moan, help us to sigh and groan. That doesn't sound really good to me. Well, first of all, it's a song. Okay. So oh, it doesn't, that's true. And so it doesn't have to be, um, it's a lyric and lyrics you can get away with more, but consider, consider that in the, in the first one, okay, you have death gives her fame, which never dies. So the life that died with shame lives in death with glorious fame. You know, anybody could have written that in my opinion. Not, I mean, not literally anybody done to death by slanderous tongue. Yeah. Benedict (laughs) couldn't have, right. Benedict is even worse than Claudio as a poet, but this next, but this last one seems to be an actual song that is being used for the occasion. It seems to be, I may be totally wrong on that. It might be. I don't know how to read all the songs in Shakespeare. It's hard. It's hard, but there's better imagery and there's way better mood in my opinion. You're right. The graves yawn and yield your dead till death be uttered. That's, that's much better. And, and the use of heavily, right? In, mm-hmm. in, in the Claudio one, you've got, you've got six lines that have an off, off kind of, they, they rhyme. Okay. So tongues, lies, wrongs, dies, shame, fame. Okay, good. A babbling rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have, in this one though, we have night, night, woe go, moan, groan heavily dead utter ed heavily mm-hmm. right that that disruption that heavily brings into it is i mean again an artist like christine perrin is probably rolling over in the grave that she's longed to be in <laughs> right now <laughs> but but she's probably thinking andrew why don't you just talk about things you know something about and and, and the reason is because if i did that i could never talk so so i throw this out for, for your evaluate, but seems to me that interjecting the heavily makes it so heavy. And, and the first part isn't really all that heavy. It's just kind of trite. So the life that died with shame lives in death with glorious fame. I'll buy that. I don't know. Well, then we should go to the wedding. <laughs> Well, I do think it's worth mentioning that Claudio says he's going to repeat this every year. Uh huh. Which that makes him a little more sympathetic for me. Like he's yes, not, yes. He, he is thinking about this. He does. He does have sorrow about this. I think that I missed that line earlier twice. Huh. Now unto thy bones, good night. Yearly will I do this right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just sad how easy it is to make fun of rhymes. <laughs> The trouble with the English language. Like I said, love has what seven words that rhyme with it. So there's just so little you can do with it. Oh, I just thought of something else. We had pointed out that Benedict and Beatrice talk in prose and not in poetry. And uh-huh. that's that makes it even more interesting that Benedict's like, I can't write poetry. Oh, good point. He they they don't they don't speak in poetry. Good point. Hmm. Huh. That's a good point. So you know what? We're we're running out of time again, believe it or oh, well, not. We're almost at scene we're there scene four here we are the unmaskings of the weddings this is so great because we end up with a wedding and a dance so that's perfect metaphorically and everyone's unmasked hold on and don john is captured okay sorry sorry we don't have a wedding we have the promise of two weddings that are going to happen right after the dancing but we don't have a wedding that's i think that's amazing to me i think i think we need to write a sequel 
to see if in fact do 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 Benedict and Beatrice actually end up getting married or does something horrible happen during the dance? <laughs> Benedict tries to recite poetry and it all goes wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that is kind of what happens. Except they try he tries to avoid reciting poetry and it all goes right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Their own hands against our hearts. I love that. N- nonetheless, you're right that this is the unmasking and the whole first page or so is all explanations. Even they even try to explain to Benedict what, what happened and his answer is, your answer, sir, is enigmatical, which you would think he would appreciate. When, when they tell him that you, you like Beatrice because we told you to and Beatrice likes you because the girls told her to. Mm-hmm. And, and I love fun. that. I love that the plot is unmasked too. All the plots have been unmasked now. Baraccio oh. has unmasked Don John's plot. This plot has been unmasked and it changes nothing. What do you mean? Well, okay. I mean, um, immediately they're embarrassed and like looking at each other, but then the poetry is exposed and then they both admit that they do in fact love each other, but they do it in their Benedict and Beatrice way. I, that's what I love. They're so fully themselves at the end. So they're okay, not, good. they're good. not trying to be the ultra romantics. They, they're, they went back to putting on the mask of I don't like you and you don't like me. And then they're like, nope, here's the poem. And he says a miracle. Here's our hands against our car- hearts. And then this is such a great line. Come, I will have thee. But by this light, I take thee for pity. Right. He says, I would not deny you, but by this good day, I yield upon great persuasion and partly to save your life. For I was told you were in a consumption. Right. Peace. I will stop your mouth. That's so perfect. Yep. Yep. Yeah. On the one hand, pity. And on the other hand, persuasion. And, and when that started, she says, he says just the page before that, Benedict, uh, Beatrice, Benedict says, which is Beatrice? And Beatrice says, I answer to that name, which is really interesting. And the title, the, the, the what do you call it? The acting disc. Right, uh, right. Is, what's the word for what Beatrice does there? Do you see it? Unmasking. Brilliant. Unmasks. And then she says, while she's unmasking, she says, I answer to that name. What is your will? And he says, do you not love me? And read what she says. Why, no, no more than reason. (laughs) Right? Persuasion, reason. I love you as much as reason dictates that I should, which, of course, is what got uh, Cordelia in so much trouble with King Lear. Ah, right. Well, no one likes to be told that. That's not a romantic thing to say. Nope. (laughs) We We really want... We want some magic, don't we? We want we some do. madness. And, I and, love you as much as duty requires. That's not just that. They don't write love poems like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe in a in a really duty-based culture, <laughs> that would mean something. But yeah, it certainly doesn't in Shakespeare's mind. Huh. There's so much. There's so much more. There's so much more that we could discuss, but we, we, we do have to kind of wrap it up. So I want to, I want to ask you, why do you think that he doesn't go ahead with the marriage, the wedding? Who he? Shakespeare. Oh. Cause Leah, cause, cause Benedict. Okay. Benedict says, let's have a dance ere we are married. I mean, who does that? And why does he want to do it? That we may lighten our own hearts and our wives' heels because Claudio just challenged him again. And he says, come, come, we are friends. Let's have a dance here. We are married. So you're, you're too heavy, Claudio. 
you're still, but they just sang last night heavily, heavily, right? So, so he's got a light in the heart at his wife's heels. And Leonardo says, we'll have dancing afterward. And Benedict insists, even though it's not his house, first of my word. And then they dance. But why? Why, why don't they? You're supposed to have the wedding and then dance. That is a very good question. Is it just another example of Shakespeare reversing our expectations in this play? Because it is much ado about nothing. And in the end, huh. there's not a wedding. Huh. And they're all dancing about there not being a wedding. So maybe what Shakespeare's doing then is he's holding out this, this play that tells us that we should think about all these different things. But in the end, there's really nothing there that holds it all together anyway. Well, I don't know that I'm ready to say that. Is this is this Shakespeare buying the Copernican system that there is no, that the Earth is not the center of the solar system and that of the Gaia system, and that there's really nothing to make sense out of life? Just do the best you can. I am definitely not ready to say Shakespeare would say that. Ah, uh, that's because you're just a fanboy. <laughs> but <laughs> dancing has the same metaphorical purpose at the end as a wedding. The wedding or the dancing or the feasting. All of that is the redemptive comic ending. You can have any of those. So the fact that they delay the wedding to have a dance didn't really bother me in the comic structure sense. Huh. It's still a reconciliation. Everybody has been unmasked. Everyone is reconciled. And John John was captured. Yes. And that's the way the play ends, in fact. Right. Benedict is taking charge here. Think not on him till tomorrow. I'll devise the brave punishments for him. So he's he's overruled Don Pedro and he's overruled Leonardo. Leonardo. Yes. He's, he's become the number one boss man. And he says, get a wife. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. need a wife. And of course, we haven't talked about his for man is a giddy thing. And this is my conclusion. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go back to that. What did you want to... I well, mean, I mean, it seems... That's your money shot at the end here. This is it for man is a giddy thing, which is sort I mean, that actually speaks a little bit to your point. Like man is a giddy thing. Who can know him? We're just. Hmm. How do you take giddy? What do you think he means by giddy? Changeable. Huh. Okay. Which I think fits in with the idea of constancy and who's the constant one and who's the inconstant one. So he just said, I know I've said all along, I was never going to marry and that I'm changing myself and i know that people are going to tease me but you know man's a giddy thing a college of witkeck crackers cannot flout me out of my humor okay that's how he starts that even if you get a whole group of people who start telling jokes at me they're not going to be able to mock at me in such a way that i change my humor my my disposition my mind right you might say okay but then man is a giddy thing well i mean come on if man is a giddy thing, then maybe that's why they don't get married because a dance can be <laughs> giddy, but a wedding is not. Well, I, but if, but, but if giddy is fickle and changeable and that if it's, to, it, it's his, it's his explanation of why he's changed. Well, man changes and I changed and I'm not going to let you guys make fun of me. You can, if you want, but it won't change anything. But isn't he saying then I have changed, but I'm not going to anymore. Uh, but he also follows it up by saying, Claudio, I've changed about you. I was going to beat you up, and but now we're going to be cousins. 
if that's all we are is giddy though, how do you build a marriage on that? I have no idea. But is man it? is changeable. That's one of the things that Elizabethan literature was so fascinated with, that God is immutable and everything else is mutable. So they're all, the time, the seasons, they're women and inconstancy, they're all, all the poets are playing around with those ideas. Do we have an essence that gives us hope? That doesn't change? In this change? last scene? Maybe. Is well, man in the end nothing? Is that the much ado we make? Is the much ado about ourselves, which is nothing? The only thing that's immutable in this scene is the priest and the vows. And they do make him, Claudio does take, he does swear before the, the friar that he will marry her. That's a, that's a binding vow. So maybe if we have a rite, a ritual, and a vow attached to it that we're going to be held to, then this giddy thing can be pinned down. And the friar says, yeah, I'll tell you the whole story after we have the holy rites. Hmm. I, I did find that um, significant, that they do have the betrothal in front of the priest. That's, that's as binding as a marriage legally. Once you're betrothed, you're legally married. He would, they would have to go to court to undo that. Huh. Huh. And then that, that becomes a, a kind of a, so what, what's going on is man is a giddy thing, but as you said, God is immutable. But how do we, how do we get, well, he, oh, when, when Beatrice says to the friar, I want you to marry me. His language is, I want you to bind me or undo me. Yes, I loved that. So to bind a person is to not allow the person to be giddy anymore. It, it, in other words, you know, you, you're stuck now. Is there a way, if we take man as giddy and, and God as immutable, ungiddy, is there a way that something within us can be made more like him? Is there something that can be done to us that can make us trustworthy, reliable, immutable to the extent that that's possible? Can you bind in a way that's meaningful, but not destructive, right? Because remember the, the whole thing was about the savage bull. We never lose that imagery of the savage bull. Except that Claudio says, we're going to dip the horns in gold. Uh-huh. How do we, okay, there you go. How do you dip the horns of a savage bull in gold in such a way that that savage bull is made more than it was before? And in such a way that it, it's, you know, it's more than just a bull that needs a, whatever you put on a bull. A, um, can you put anything on a bull? I don't know. But how, how, how can, by, by, by dipping the horns in gold, you make it more than it had been. It's more than just a savage bull. Is yes, there and, and, and though there's the idea that, okay, so if the, if the horns is the cuckold horns, then what Claudio is saying is what would have been almost a crown of shame is going to be glorified because we're going to make it gold. And how? By the marriage. 
So, so marriage then is something that takes a giddy human being and breathes something eternal into him. It has to be. And when, so when Benedict says, bind me or undo me, I thought that that was an interesting putting together again, as it always has been through the play, the wet, wedding and death. Hmm. Hmm. It is a type of death to get married. It's a death to self. Totally agree. And Therefore. Benedict is willingly saying it. And they, I mean, and Harrow and Claudio have just been saying, you know, old Claudio died and old Harrow died. And, you know, they're, they're all talking about that. And then he says, bind me or undo me, which I thought was a fantastic line. That's, that's a great association there. Nice job. Great juxtaposition. One of my all-time favorite lines of poetry was it just one line that John Dunn wrote about his wife. And it's John Dunn and Dunn undone. <laughs> that's pretty good. I just think that's so romantic. And I thought about that when Benedict says, bind me to this woman and undo me. Huh. I wrote a, I wrote a note in the back of my book that was kind of a reflection that came from the whole book. And I, I wrote it this way. You can't see how the eternal enters the present unless you can see both. You can't see how the eternal enters the present unless you can see both. And what I mean is, okay, let me draw, let me complete the analogy. In a marriage, you, you are bringing the eternal and the present together. The, the assumption here is that the present is fleeting, right? And in that moment of marriage, the eternal is brought into this present moment. But a person who doesn't perceive eternal things isn't going to see anything of the eternal in a marriage. And a person who doesn't see present things isn't going to see the present in a marriage. And both of them are going to suffer by not being able to see both. And then I finished the thought with, this is prudence. The ability to see an eternal principle in a present circumstance and knowing what to do in an ever-changing reality because there's something eternal and, and immutable in it. And I wonder if in a certain sense, that's not what Shakespeare's, well, let me just say that that thought is a product of me reading this play. So I wonder if I've misread it. I wonder if, or I can't say I misread it. It directed me to that thought, whether it meant to or not. But but is that something that you think is there? That the the bringing together of the the immutable and the mutable, the eternal into the present time. Is that what a dance does? Oh, well, especially when we consider that uh, Beatrice used dancing as the metaphor for the stages of courtship. Maybe that's why it ends in a dance. She starts off talking about the dancing, right? Uh -huh. People dancing as a type of courting. And, and she goes through the stages of a relationship as different kinds of dances. And then she says something like, I'll dance by myself or something. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's and what... it brings together harmony. Right. Right. So if they're dancing at the end, they're all in harmony. because You have to be or you're stepping all over each other. Right. Perfect. Thank you. And so Beatrice was imprudent if we go with my little statement there. She was being imprudent by saying, I'm going to dance by myself because she couldn't accept. She was stuck in the present. She was stuck in her circumstances. And all she saw was change. And there was no space in that for what was unchangeable. And the unchangeable to enter into life needs ritual, needs form, needs dance, seems to me. 
Yes. And dancing would have had a very specific form here. So it would be ending with form and harmony and all of these couples being united hmm. in the dance of marriage. I got to go back and find the original quote when she says that. Oh, I found it. Oh, that was well providential. Done. Right there. The fault will be in the music, cousin. Where are you? Uh, where am I? Line 69. Uh, what scene am two I one? in? 2 1. The fault will be in the music, cousin, if you be not wooed in good time. If the prince be too important, tell him there is measure in everything, and so dance out the answer. For hear me, Harrow, oh, wooing, brilliant. wedding, and repenting. What? Wooing, wedding, and repenting? We, this, that's what the play's about. Yep. For hear me, Harrow, wooing, wedding, and repenting is as a scotch jig, a measure and a syncopace. The first suite is hot and hasty like a scotch jig and full as fantastical the huh. wedding mannerly modest a measure full of state and ancient ancient and then comes repentance <laughs> falls into the syncopace faster and faster until he sinks into his grave so it, she brings it back to death too you know what i love though is that in the play repentance precedes the wedding yes and it's not repenting of marrying that's what right. she's saying that you right. regret regret oh why did i do this and she had to have that turned around for her to become both of them. Yeah. Both couples had to have regret. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. What a great phrase. If the prince be too important, tell him there is measure in everything. And so dance out the answer. And, but right? that's what the play has done. It's dancing out the answer at the yep. end here. Yep. Well, the whole play, I would say yes. And then add to that, the whole play itself dances out the answer because mm. it puts the whole tension, it puts the whole, it puts her whole error into a form and then, and then revises the form to get her back in accord with reality through the deceptions and masks and everything else that were necessary to heal her. And she come in the end, she repents before getting married so that she doesn't have to repent after she gets married. Oh, that's good. Yes, that's good. That Shakespeare's pretty clever, isn't he? He is a clever one. All right. Well, you see, he yeah, he he hammers out the dancing metaphor too well for us to think that that's an oversight on his point to end it with dancing. Yeah. They're, they're dancing out the answer. That's fantastic. You got me. I wondered. I, I thought it I thought, good grief, they don't even get married. But I didn't want to be too dogmatic, and I think you've explained it to me. Well, uh, you've helped me to see it myself. I had not made that connection before this conversation. It, it's fun how a, a verbal dance, which we call conversation, can lead us to new insights. Yes, um, that's always very exciting to me when that happens. And, and the thing about dancing, too, you know, we keep talking about harmony, but when you're and it would be kind of a group dance that they uh -huh, would be having. Uh -huh. So it's it's plain to see who's out of tune and who's out of step. Can be. That's, that's Don John, which that's right. why he's caught. Right. So he's removed, and now the community is dancing. That fits what I was talking last week about how there's always some element in which the weddings are a restoration of the community. So they're all so they're having a group dance then. Right, right. Well, I, I, I've never danced myself in in my whole life. I've danced about five times, and one of the reasons for that is because I grew up very fundamentalist and, and, and never read the Bible passages about dancing, um, except Michael and David, of course. But um, so I had a bad attitude about it, but I also had a, I had a really bad attitude about it because in my culture growing up, dancing was used for pairing off. 
and it became kind of a performance art that I had no background in. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't want to participate. Well, last weekend we had a dance at the uh, apprenticeship gathering and Levi Gulliver, who, who's a, a caller, I think they're called, would, he instructed us and stuff. And, and what was fascinating to me about that was how as he's instructing us and we're all practicing, one is you really don't have to be perfectly rhythmic and you don't have to be a great performer because like in a choir, a mediocre singer just gets drawn into the, the voices around them. And the other thing was, man, we spent a lot of time crashing into each other. And I didn't know that there was room for communal dancing and, and making mistakes, which is quite an absurd statement. But but that was that was dance to me was just a scary thing that you're, I'm going to go into that. I'm very unmusical and I'm going to look horrible. And I did. Frankly, I did look horrible. But people were people were gracious and some other people also looked horrible. So it was a good experience. And, and together by being able to, you might say, repent in this metaphorical way, we were able to start at our level of, of dance and, and we improved just by doing it. And I do think that there's something deeply, deeply theological, cosmological and ethical in a good dance. And oh, absolutely. The loss of it has cost us dearly. Absolutely. I mean, while you were talking, I was thinking about how it's easy to overlook the dancing metaphor in here in this play because we think of dancing as highly individualistic, uh, seductive, yeah. showing off your individual abilities, whereas communal dancing is the opposite of that. I mean, the fact that there's a caller means there's a very deliberate form that everyone is supposed to be following. Right. And if anybody starts freestyling, it messes it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 20th century dance is very much about the freestyling. If you look at, if you look at, and another thing I'll add is that is that on television, um, communal dancing doesn't have the same. It's harder to look cool, right? It's harder. It it doesn't it doesn't work as well on television. Now you'll get you know Jane Austen movies. I was going to say read Jane Austen. Everybody, oh, it works great in books. Up in a good dance. Right, it works great in books. <laughs> that was one but, of those puzzling things to me as a kid when I read Jane Austen. It was like, how are they having all these conversations? <laughs> right. Yeah, and I read was it Jane Austen or Wendell Berry who who makes the point that, or somebody else makes the point that when you're dancing that way, you might get a chance to dance with the girl that you're there with and that you love and that you're trying to attract, but the next person you dance with might be her grandmother. And that, that is a very socially important reality. But in our culture, we pair off individually to get married. And dance and marriage, boy, the, the, the association between dance and marriage and the forms of each, they really go together. And I, I boy, I could just get lost here. We were supposed to talk about not to do about nothing. And I don't want to make sure. Well, we are. Because the dancing is the controlling metaphor. True. True. No, we absolutely are talking about that. And it's true that like the dance, the weddings have social implications. Benedict starts off asking Leonardo, can I marry Beatrice? In that last scene. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Before he asks her. Actually, he never asks her. <laughs> they just have banter and then kiss, which I take as a yes. I think that's a pretty, I think you could say that's a yes. Well, when you go back to that earlier scene where it's stop her and tell him to stop talking and give him a kiss with where Harrow and Claudia, and then Benedict takes the advice, oh. peace, I will stop your mouth. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I guess it's a marriage proposal. I will have thee. And she says, oh, I will have thee. So, yeah. And then, and then Pedro takes it that way. How dost thou Benedict the married man? 
So maybe they did get married. Maybe, maybe when they kissed right there, they're married. More casual view of marriage. And, than and, I would think. <laughs> and, and then the dance, which is great. That's great. Oh, I'm so glad we, we, we sat down and tried to figure out what all this dancing was about. I would have totally missed that no. earlier reference. He does say, let's have a dance ere we are married. So that solution doesn't work. But I agree. I agree. I had not really um, come to understand. But that's the thing I love about Shakespeare's plays and, and one like this especially is that, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I think I did anyway, um, in the day of that play being written, you were expected to take in the whole and then go back and repeat it, you know, piece by piece and look for themes and echoes and form that goes through it. And having this conversation with you about the play has helped me do that a lot. So I think we need to wrap up because of the time, but I can't do so without saying thank you. This has been oh, I really, have really, helpful really I have, I feel the same way. I've really, really enjoyed this and have uh, the play has really opened up to me in these conversations. I'm, I'm, glad. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Me too. I might go read it again. Well, we have one more episode, so we, can, we do. We have a Q and A, so I guess ah, we should perfect. say uh, post your. This is usually David says this. So uh, on the Close Reads Facebook page, if you want to post your questions for the question and answer episode, I think you could hashtag it Much Ado Q and A or something like that, so we can find it. And I think you can also email David if you're not on Facebook with your questions for the final episode. So we have one more where we That's can answer awesome. questions and talk about whatever, whatever we left out. I didn't realize that. Thank you. See, I've been out right. of the, the loop on these. That's fantastic. No, it's been really good. He's, he started adding these uh, Q&A episodes at the end. It's, it's been really good. He's a smart guy, you know. Well, glad you keep him around. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Get to see my grandchildren that way. I love, <laughs> I, I, I love, the, boy dear, I love the boy dearly. All right. All right. Hey, we All should. right. Well, we'll wrap it up. It was a Do good time. Any... No, this was great. I'm excited about this dancing stuff. Do you have any closing thoughts? Nope, that's it. I'm excited about the dancing stuff. That's my closing thought. Huh, cool. <laughs> Do you have a closing thought? Well, I just was looking at Claudio when, when he's shaming Hero. And Hero says, oh, God, defend me. How am I beset? What kind of catechizing call you this? In other words, what are you trying to teach me? And Claudio says, to make, your, to make you answer truly to your name. That's pretty oh, good. and so Beatrice says at the end, I answer to that name. Yep. So naming is related to this question of identity and the masks and who are we. And that question that I brought up earlier of categorizing, which is a horrible way to put it. But yeah, naming is so crucial. And answering truly to your name. Which Margaret and, Margaret and Baraccio don't. Remember, she's, he's calling her Hero and she's answering to a name that is not hers. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the end, one could say that they do, but maybe the goal of Much Ado About Nothing as a play is to make everybody realize they need to answer truly to their name. You need to be honest about who you are. You need to let it be known. Which is not as easy as you might think. Especially since we're sinners. Right. Because it involves repentance. Mm -hmm. But that's okay in a certain sense. I don't want to be glib, but it, the gospel does begin with the repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The horrifying difficulty of repentance does lead to the ultimate marriage. Yes, absolutely. Amen to that. And then we will get a name that only he and we know. So 
With that, that's my closing thought. All right. We'll see you next week. Send in your questions and answers. I mean, send in your questions and we will try to answer them. Well, I don't mind if they send in the answers. Yeah, they should totally send in the answers. Maybe what they should do is send in the answers and then we come up with the questions. We we love a Jeopardy episode. (laughs) (laughs) What is the theme? All right, I'm out of control again. All right, all right. Well, let's let's close it down so he can take care of it. Thanks, Angelina. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, listeners. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.